1: Now, on to the interview with Hugh
0: Hewitt.
1: Welcome back. America. I'm, I'm Hugh Hewitt. That's Neil Diamond. I'm using him as a bump because my next guest, Dwight Chapin, has a brand new book out, The President's Man, that references Neil Diamond. I'll come to that. First breaking news minutes ago. Vladimir Putin and Sergey Lavrov appeared on Moscow television to discuss the fact that diplomatic possibilities are far from exhausted. I would propose continuing intensifying them. Putin responding, good, that's the breaking news. Now let's put it into context of dealing with the Soviets for 50 years. Dwight Chapin, author of The President's Man, welcome to The Hugh Hewitt Show.
2: Hi, Hugh. Glad to be on.
1: Great to have you. You did such a superb job on this week with George Stephanopoulos on Super Bowl Sunday. I'm not surprised the president's man is skyrocketing up, but I want to go right to the nub, Dwight. You went with President Nixon to Moscow as a young staffer to deal with Brezhnev. You were there with him in San Clemente and Camp David when Brezhnev came to deal with him. Putin was at that time, like I was, a young man watching. What did Nixon do with Brezhnev that Joe Biden is not doing with Putin? Putin.
2: Well, I think uh, President Nixon had something that, that I'm not sure that the current president has, and that is a base of knowledge and uh, a vision for how he was going to handle these issues. And uh, so, so strategically, Nixon was a genius, and and he, he had multiple plans for every contingency. So I, I kind of wonder here if— uh, we don't need some uh, more advanced leadership in place. We need strategy
1: Now, Dwight, I'm going to get into, I've got a long conversation with you coming up. After the break, we're going to go a second segment, okay. then we're going to do the interview. But I want, to, I want to drill down immediately on the president's man. You went with Nixon to China in 1972. Uh, on that trip, did he give you any kind of clues as to how he thought the Chinese would evolve over the next 50 years in terms of a regime?
2: Actually, he did he said that uh, at one point he said you know one of the reasons we're doing this in 50 years uh we're going to be adversaries and we need to be able to talk to one another and so i uh, i think it's amazing i have that in the book the president's man you know he 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 was always thinking ahead
1: uh, the president's man is maybe the most important i have a column in washington post edit right now so i don't really care about memoirs that come out within five years of a presidency because nobody has the whole scope of the field this is 50 years after the uh the events dwight so you were a very young man to walk through four plus years of the nixon white house
2: yes i i started working for the president actually when i was 21 years old and a student at usc and he ran for governor against pat brown and i was with him through uh Uh, the tough years of the 1968 campaign and on into the White House. And I I really had an incredible seat uh, witnessing uh, what happened with Richard Nixon. And I have tried in The President's Man to really, you know, zero in on what I saw. And you just raised a very, very important point. Most of these memoirs are written 10 minutes after somebody leaves the White House. And uh, I, I, I'm looking back 50 years and I I hope that in my writing, you know, that through the, the lens of the president's man I, and looking back, I'm able to give some perspective to things.
1: Oh, Dwight, it's riveting. It's a fascinating book. The President's Man, every presidential historian's going to love it. But everyone who wants to understand Russia and China should read it as well. I am I am amazed, though that Nixon let someone your age get close to him. Now, the, the, the key thing is, you just said student at USC. So we're going to overlook the fact that there aren't really any students at USC. We're going to talk about the culture of USC and, <laughs> in, in the late 50s. And I had dinner with Sandy Quinn on Saturday, on Thursday last night. We were talking about how he recruited you into it. That's how politics work. Your fraternity brother gets you in and you never get out.
2: That's right. That's right. Sandy was incredibly important in my life, always has been one of my oldest friends. But it was my father uh, in 1962 when I did not have a summer job. And I always had to have a job. Uh, that was part of our family culture. And uh, he arranged for me to go down on uh, Wilshire Boulevard to, to the Nixon for governor headquarters. So it was dad that did this. And I I went in there and I was interviewed by a very young uh, campaign manager, crew cut guy named Bob Haldeman, who would end up being Nixon's chief of staff. And, And as I say in my book, that 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 day changed my life for the better forever. You
1: know, Haldeman changed the presidency forever. The Haldeman model is still the model that Ron Klain is using in the White House today.
2: Yes, most people do not know this. I have a long section on that. Uh, The managerial system of the Nixon White House became a model. And actually, the the, the credit goes to President Nixon, who the minute he got into the White House, he said to Haldeman uh, in a meeting, he said, I want you to get General Andy Goodpasture in here. Uh, And General Goodpasture had been uh, the staff secretary in the Eisenhower administration and Nixon, as vice president under Eisenhower, had, had watched uh, the, the process. And he knew that in order to cope with everything that was going on, they had to get a structure in place. So Andy, uh, General Andy Goodpasture came in, met with Haldeman, and then Haldeman put together the meshing of what Goodpasture said with, with what Haldeman knew about Nixon. And that's how they ended up with the staff secretarial system that has been used all the way through. I, I, I put in the book, The President's Man, that I, I've talked to, uh, I believe it was seven other White House chiefs of staff over the years, and I always ask them about this because it, it's so so germane to what Haldeman was all about and how Nixon operated. And actually, it's germane to how a White House functions. And uh, they all give credit to Bob Haldeman.
1: The president's man is all about the promise and peril of politics. The promise that a young Dwight Chapin chased after and achieved the peril of playing uh, for high stakes in a divided D.C. And there is it's the same lesson. It's the same drama. Oh, you know, we had the Durham statement on Friday that they were spying on President Trump. Dwight Uh, presidents really do have enemies and they can respond to them the right way or the wrong way. RN got it wrong. You detail that. Would you briefly remind people why you went to jail?
2: I went to jail for uh, because I was uh, being I was prosecuted. uh, Basically, uh, the the prosecutors were trying to get to President Nixon and to Bob Haldeman. And I was uh, conveniently uh, a young staffer in the White House. And I I had been Uh, asked to find someone to play uh, pranks on the Democrats. There was a very famous prankster that the Democrats had by the name of Dick Tuck. Uh, Dick Tuck was a terrific guy. I I, I knew him. Uh, I'd known him for years. He had pulled tricks on us in 1962. He had pulled tricks on Nixon in 1960 when I wasn't even around. And he had also been on the scene in 1968. So when Bob Haldeman and uh, President Nixon said, do you think you could come up with anybody that could do uh, Dick Tuck type activities? I thought, "Okay, I I can do that. And I went and found my good friend, Don Segretti, who had been a roommate at USC. And uh, unfortunately, uh, I put Don into a very awkward situation. He he ended up going out and doing some, quote, dirty, what are called dirty tricks, but they were really prankster-type activities. And uh, when that got discovered through the uh, pursuit of the people at Creep, uh, I, we got caught up in that. Uh, I was taken to a grand jury. When Don Segretti went to a grand jury, he said, uh, when Dwight hired me, he said one of the reasons he 's hiring me is that I hired me is that uh, i 'm a lawyer, and Dwight said you know you 'll know what 's right and what 's wrong so when when Don said that to the grand jury, it made it impossible for me to be indicted for what he did because obviously he was a lawyer, and he should have known what was right and what was wrong. But what they did is in the the prosecutors are very clever, and keep in mind these these prosecutors there were around thirty Watergate prosecutors, and all of them, every single one, was a Democrat, and most had worked either for, for uh, President Kennedy or for uh, Attorney General Robert Kennedy uh, out out of that Har- Harvard maze. So it was it was a very it was a partisan process. Yeah, yeah,
1: Dwight. What, the only thing that disappointed me about the ABC interview with you yesterday before the Super Bowl on this week is that they said you went to jail because of Watergate. No, you didn't. You went to jail because of Donald Segretti. And so that was a misstatement, unless we understand Watergate to uh, be a a reference to everything that was done that was political and or criminal in the course of the Nixon White House, because you did not go to jail for Watergate.
2: I know it. Uh, When my father was... uh about ready to pass away, he said he he called me to the bedside and he said, son, son, will you promise me that someday you'll try to seek a pardon and get get your name cleared? Uh, It it bothered him so much that uh, I had been put into that Watergate umbrella. Um, I I have elected over time not to go for a pardon. Uh, And by the uh, way, I
1: love your explanation of that in the president's man. I I think people should read why you didn't go for a pardon. i got to go to a break here, Dwight. But before I do that, two more observations, the most surprising things I found in the president's man. Number one, you did not meet G. Gordon Liddy until 1980. People assume, like, like (laughs) G. Gordon Liddy was living in the West Wing. No. Number two, you interviewed John Dean for his job. Uh, Now, John Dean, to quote Alsup, the columnist, bottom-dwelling slug, he has avoided hard questions for 50 years. He's tried to get people to believe he's a martyr. He routinely distorts and lies when he's on TV. He should have nothing to do with the Watergate look back. And you interviewed him for the job, Dwight. I didn't know that until I read The President's Man.
2: Yes, I interviewed him for the job. And I I said that I thought that he might fit in. But I had a caveat there. I said, I think we should that. We cannot expect him to be loyal to the president. And I was uh, uh, was right on the money there.
1: Yeah. I'm coming right back with Dwight Chapin. His new book is The President's Man. It's at Amazon.com. I've tweeted out, go find The President's Man, go buy The President's Man. If you love politics, if you love history, if you're a young person, especially getting into politics and aspiring to get to the top, which is what Dwight Chapin did before he was 30, Right at the president's side in a substantive role at 30 dealing with the Russians, dealing with the war in Vietnam, dealing with the Chinese, dealing with the domestic political adversarial press. It's all in the president's man. Go and get it. Don't go anywhere. I'm coming back with Dwight Chapin. The President's Man is over at Amazon.com. Just remember that. Henry Kissinger, Karl Rove, Newt Gingrich, James Rosen, Douglas Brinkley, Luke Nichter, The most amazing blurbs for The President's Man. Maybe the the most interesting memoir of a White House to come out in 50 years, because he waited 50 years. Stay tuned. Welcome back, America. I'm Hugh Hewitt. That's Neil Diamond from 1975. I'm playing it because my guest, Dwight Chapin, whose brand new book, The President's Man, available at Amazon.com, bookstores everywhere. The President's Man was featured on This Week Yesterday and will be everywhere because it's really maybe the best memoir by a staffer ever written because he waited the longest. It's 48 years after the fact that Dwight Chapin has delivered The President's Man about the Nixon years. And it could not be more timely because Nixon dealt successfully with both Russia and the People's Republic of China. Unlike Joe Biden and Putin and Xi today, uh, Dwight recounts that in The President's Man. Dwight, can I tell you that the most interesting part of this for a lot of people will be your nine months at Lompoc? And listening to Neil Diamond as you walk around the track.
2: I, uh, I, I. Wish I had gone to Lompoc before I went to the White House. Uh, I, I say that, and people think I'm out of my mind. But the uh, period at Lompoc gave me a chance to really reflect and to understand a, another side of life by meeting uh, the young men that were in prison, and incarcerated there. It was it was not a you know a, a prison with wire, a barbed wire, and all that. It was more of a uh, open campus, but, but we were all restricted. We were, (laughs) we had lost our freedom. Uh, but I spent a good part of every day, uh, walking around the track, uh, thinking about my life, thinking about what I had done that got me there and kind of dreaming about what I was going to do when I left. Uh, I, I, it was a very productive time for me, and I, one, of, one of the things I'm, I'm very proud of is that I, I took the opportunity there to, to set up an uh, employment bureau, if you will, and uh, as I described in The President's Man, I, I would take these young uh, people that were getting ready to go out into the world who, in many cases, did not – I mean, they were scared. They did not know how they were going to approach life. And we would write letters, and I would figure out, you know, what, what they knew that might be a yeah. It must point, have been amazing. Try and get a job.
1: It must have been amazing for yeah. Big Mike, who helped you stay safe, to realize he was talking to the guy who traveled on Air Force One to Beijing and to, uh, to Moscow. And it's just such a strange that, thing.
2: That, that's a great story. Uh, very, very quickly, uh, a couple of the younger guys uh, uh, harassed me. Uh, not, nothing serious, but they kind of bumped me in the hallway and so forth. And a friend of mine said, you need to go over and talk to Big Mike. And I went over to what they called his house. It was really just his room there in the barracks. And I knocked on the door and the door opens. There's this mammoth man. I knew right there why they called him Big Mike. He was African-American. He had come out of Soledad. He was a real hardcore Uh, uh, prisoner. And I said, "Uh, Mike, my name is Dwight Chapin, and uh, it's been recommended that I talk to you. And he says, well, come on in. I went in. I told him my story. Turned out he loved politics. In fact, I got Pat Buchanan, my good friend, to autograph a book and send it in to him. We had great politics. But let me tell you, no one ever came near me again. <laughs> you know,
1: I, I thought of the mayor of Kingston, the new Amazon Prime series, when I read that story in The President's Man. It's just it's just a different yeah. world. And I want to emphasize to people, The President's Man will rivet you into history, but will also give you a lot of lessons about politics, the ups and downs. And it will also uh, summarize Richard Nixon in a way he hasn't been summarized yet. And I, I want people like Nixon to do that. But I also want people to understand you know, you probably did more good with this book by talking about Clem Stone than anything else, Dwight. Uh, w. Clement Stone is forgotten by a lot of people, but he's a remarkable character.
2: Yes, he was. He, he uh, W. Clement Stone is an American hero. This man, I at one point when I was working for him after I had left the White House, uh, the Northern Trust Bank in Chicago had him come over. Uh, for a meeting, and Mr. Stone took me with him. And we had lunch downstairs in the Banks dining room, and uh, they brought out these uh, three-inch thick, uh, five-inch thick notebooks. And and as you turn through them, they were all of the pledges that he had made to girls and boys clubs, drug rehabilitation. Rehabilitation programs and so forth, and and the bankers said to Mr. Stone, "Mr. Stone, you're going with all these commitments, you're going to run out of money." And he said, "That's exactly what I plan That's on doing. That's the plan. I want to I want to give it away. I I don't want somebody else giving away my money. I'm going to do it."
1: W. Clement Stone. There's so much in the president's man. I'm going to continue talking to Dwight on the other side, because at this moment, Russia has not started a war. Nixon walked into the White House in the middle of a war, 500,000 American troops in a combat zone. We'll talk with Dwight Chapin about that. That will be available at the interview with Hugh Hewitt later today. But go and get The President's Man right now. Frank Luntz's rule. If you don't say the title seven times, The President's Man, The President's Man, The President's Man. Go get it at Amazon.com. Give it to anyone you know who loves politics. And he was thinking about a career in it, especially people under the age of 30, which is what Dwight Chapin was when he went to the White House, and then he went to LOMPA. the president's man. I'll be back tomorrow, America. Hopefully Russia will not have invaded. I'll bring you the breaking news always first in interviews like this one with Dwight Chapin. Stay tuned. Back now with Dwight Chapin for the interview the longer segment. Dwight, um, I think the greatest senior or junior year term paper I've ever heard of in high school is your daughter Kimberly's project because she produced real history. In fact, would you tell people about the project and who responded to her, why she did it? It's the best part of the president's man.
2: Well, uh, my daughter Kimberly, a very bright woman who is now uh, considerably older, obviously, uh, she had a, a a term project and she decided to do it on Watergate and she wrote letters she wrote letters to President Nixon, to former Attorney General John Mitchell, to John Ehrlichman, and to Bob Haldeman, and all four men responded to her. And we have put various excerpts of these letters in into the book with, with her permission. I mean she, she owns the letters. Uh, but Uh, There are various insights that come through. I mean, you you can find some of the the character of the men themselves. Nixon, I would say, was the one that was most kind of aloof in his answers, whereas John Mitchell was very direct, uh, a handwritten letter saying that he felt that the American public did not understand what Watergate was all about, which is true. I, th- I think John Mitchell hits a very important chord here. Uh, in fact, most people have just accepted the idea that this was a scandal and that Richard Nixon was somehow evil and uh, his his reputation has been tarnished by this, whereas Richard Nixon was a victim. Not that he didn't make mistakes, that he apologized to the nation for On David Frost, I'm not. Not obviously, he felt that he had a need to apologize, and he did. But he was trapped by his uh, counsel. He he for in my book, in the appendix of my book, makes it clear beyond any doubt that this man was not told the truth. The president of the United States was not told the truth from. June break in through till March of 1973. Nine months. I used the example the other day, Hugh, of President Johnson. Uh, I I was absolutely astounded when I learned of Robert Matinabara's book uh, about his years working for Johnson. And in Robert Matinabara's book, he talks about the fact that when he was defense secretary, they gave bad information incorrect information on the vietnam war to the president of the united states in other words the secretary of defense knew the information that he was given to johnson was not truthful dean's information to nixon was not truthful he did he, he dean knew the truth he knew who was involved he could have He could have, at day one, said, folks, here's what's going on. And he did not do that. No, he didn't. And, Dwight,
1: what's what's so impressive about The President's Man, your memoir, and Jeff Shepard's book, The Watergate Conspiracy, is that 48 years after the resignation, arrived two new books, which will command the attention of any serious historian. I'm not sure that they'll change the 50th anniversary Narrative in Hollywood, your conversation with Ron Bass is very interesting at the end. But history is going to have to deal with the fact that John Dean was the desk man for the Watergate cover-up. He should never be on TV. It's, it's sort of like when I see Tim Naftali, the third director of the, of the Nixon Library on TV, pretending to be a presidential historian as opposed to a partisan attack dog. It's like Dean showing up. You're very gracious. You're not a bitter man at all. But it must cause some bile in your throat to see him fetid as an ethics expert.
2: Yes, I, 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 I call that a joke in the book. I mean, for him to be appearing at legal conferences as an ethics expert is beyond belief. Uh, we did find a document that was a report done in 1974, by the FBI, it was an internal investigation trying to determine what the FBI had done wrong, and it was, it was written to the director. And in that document, which is in the back of the president's man, it's in the appendix, uh, They call the FBI calls John Dean the master manipulator of Watergate. And and he yeah, sent no, you a I mean, telegram
1: that... on the day you were released from prison. That told me more about John Dean than anything else. I mean, the guy sent you to prison, and and he he sends yeah. you a telegram. Congrat. I, I just the guy is really as. I think it was Stuart Olson, Quote: Bottom dwelling slug, and he, he skips That's out on any confrontation with anyone who knows anything about Watergate. Let me go back to Nixon. I got to know Nixon in nineteen seventy eight. Knew him for fifteen years after the fall. So I got to see everything in the rearview mirror. You lived it forward at, at the speed of sound. I mean, from 1962 to 1974 must be a blur in your mind, Dwight Chapin.
2: And well, it, it, it's a blur, but it's a blur, I think, that I've anchored myself uh, in, in terms of the president's man into to, to dissecting. I had uh, lots of jur- uh, journal entries that uh, I, I had kept a journal, I had a tremendous number of letters back and forth with Bob Haldeman, which helped to my recall. And then uh, the archives there in California are filled with documents. So it was a treasure trove of material to help refresh my, my memory on these various stories and the happenings.
1: I, I love the summary line on page 348. This ridiculous, completely unnecessary burglary had changed American history. I just think that was very succinct. I don't know how long it took for you to come up with that concise rendering of Watergate. This ridiculous, completely unnecessary burglary had changed American history.
2: Yes, it did. Yes, it did. But the important thing, Hugh, is that Richard Nixon knew nothing about that. He had no idea that that was going to happen. And it was the mishandling of it by lower-level aides who had the opportunity to tell the truth and didn't step up to it. Now and, uh, I am I, in my interview with George Stephanopoulos with uh, Rick Klein on that show over on Sunday. Uh, it was part that didn't make didn't make the cut. But I he, I was asked how I felt about young people coming into government, and I I I think it's. Inc- it's critical that young people come into government and, and 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 get into the process. But but they have got to be have the intestinal fortitude to tell their superiors the truth. And we have a situation where that did not happen.
1: Now, Dwight Chapin, there is a very useful White House staff chart at the beginning. And I made check marks next to every single person with whom I've had extended conversations. So even though I'm young, I got to meet and know 32 of the people on that path chart. And, but again, from the perspective of it all being behind me, who disappointed you the most?
2: I was disappointed the most in my, from my research with a good friend of mine from USC by the name of Gordon Strawn. Gordon was an aide to Bob Haldeman and he has refused for the last fifty years to be interviewed, talked to, or anything. And I and I finally figured out why, and that is because when John Dean on the right immediately after the uh, break-in, when he talked to Gordon Liddy, he said, "Is there anybody else at the White House that knew?" And Gordon Liddy said, "Yes, Gordon Strawn," and. John Dean lied before the Senate, said there was no one else, Gordon Strawn himself covered up the fact that he had had knowledge that there was going to be a break-in, and knowing Gordon as I do, and he's an incredibly bright lawyer now, but he was a very young man then, and he had, in my opinion, an obligation to Bob Haldeman, his superior. Uh, when when he first saw Bob after this, in, after the break in, he said he should have said, sir, there's something I have to share with you and you're not going to like it. And here's what happened. Had he done that, history would have been changed.
1: Right, oh, so it's such a stupid resigned. thing that happened. Such a stupid thing. All right. Let me go to the can two. You, can big I say, Go ahead, Dwight.
2: Yeah, I. Uh, you talk about the front of the book. I, I want to mention that in the back of the book, we have an appendix of tapes and that these tapes, uh, the transcripts we've worked very hard on. And we give a resource, uh, a list, a viewer of the book, a reader of the book can go to the appendix, bring up on their own computer uh, the actual tape uh, that that transcript covers and listen to the tape. Uh, as they're reading the transcript. It, it, it's a marvelous thing to hear, to actually hear inside the Oval Office, John Dean talking to Richard Nixon.
1: It's at page 429 to 431, and you really can't beat it. Uh, you really cannot beat this book, The President's Man. Dwight, I want to cover two serious subjects uh, before we go. First of all, you're a civilian. You arrive in the White House. Americans are being wounded or killed at a 1,000 a week. Um, as a civilian... Did that hit you that that you and the President and the whole team had to stop the death of Americans
2: well it, it it sure hit me It hit me in a couple of different ways. One way, I felt incredibly inferior to the men that worked in the White House, particularly the military aides who like like uh, our friend Jack Brennan. Yeah. Uh, who who men, these these incredible people who had been over there and experienced and fought in Vietnam. Uh, and I had not been in the service and I, I kind of felt lesser than I mean, I I respected all of all of these people that came into the White House that had their military credentials were to me very, very special people.
1: You know, I've referred, by uh, so, the way, Dwight, to many years to Jack Brennan level loyalty. It's a, it's yes. a, it's a good yeah. level. It's, it's, it cannot be <laughs> surpassed. It is, of course, he's never touched by Watergate. He's a military aide, but he sticks with the old man until, right. uh, until he gets back to New York. Jack Brennan level loyalty right. is rare.
2: It's rare. Uh, Jack read my book and uh, sent me an email, uh, congratulating me and saying that it was one of the best summaries of uh Richard Nixon that he had he had ever encountered and, and that was like to me a gold st- a stamp of approval.
1: Yeah, no no better person other than the daughters to actually pass that judgment than Jack Brennan. But back to the Vietnam issue. Did it weigh on you every day going to work that there's a war going on?
2: Yes it did. It was it was hanging over the uh the whole uh period in the White House and I uh, get uh, I mean, you know we 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 had to deal with all the demonstrators out on the 500,000 at one point out there on their maturium, uh, moratorium days. Uh, it was on our mind constantly, and and I uh, uh, I there was a poignant moment. That, the, it happened two or three times, but the first time the buzzer went off and uh, the, the president had a buzzer on his desk. When he pushed it, I was to go into the office, and I went in and he uh said here uh give these to rose and there was this tear coming down the side of his face and the what he had handed me were letters to the parents of young soldiers who had lost their life in vietnam and this this thing was incredibly personal to him Powerful and, and one of the, the thing box. one of the things that upset me most was when some historians or uh others have implied that the President and Henry Kissinger wanted to uh, have the war continue into the nineteen seventy two period because it would be useful politically that that to me is absolutely outrageous and uh does not give credit to Richard Nixon, who was a Quaker. Who who did not believe in war. He wanted to end that war, and he everything in his heart and soul was directed toward getting that accomplished. And you said it earlier. When he came, there were five hundred and ten thousand troops in Vietnam when he went into office, and when he left, I think it was down somewhere eight eight to ten thousand. And as you know, the war ended very soon thereafter. I mean, he, would, he had he not left office, it would have all been over really soon.
1: Americans were not dying when he left office. Uh, let me let me close by talking about China, Dwight, because the 50th anniversary of the trip is, of course, right now. And that's why the president's man is so timely. When you arrived in China 50 years ago, were you startled by how primitive it was?
2: It was unbelievable. I, I look at the pictures now and I can't believe it. Uh, it was all this m- muted grays and... Uh, uh, nothing nothing colorful in fact in fact that was one of the reasons when when Nixon went to China we put Mrs Nixon in a red coat uh i mean to to draw the contrast uh for the you know, television audiences back home but yes it was it was very primitive there were signs up you know run, running dogs of capitalism and all, all of this propaganda uh stuff with, that was aimed at the united states uh, it was It was a, an incredible experience to go over there right at the outset of this of this opening and and see how primitive it really was
1: so Dwight coming forward fifty years um, and let's let 's just think out fifty years. You and I will both be in heaven we won 't have to worry about this, but our grandkids will if the same pathways are followed, if the same trend lines continue that have emerged over the 50 years since the opening to china what will the world look like in 2072
2: well it depends on who's fixing the trend lines it, it depends upon who this nation turns to in order to come up with strategically with what it is and how we're going to to run ourselves i think You know, what happened here is that the commercial aspect of everything, which we all are free enterprise people, I believe. We believe in that. But that outran that commercial stuff got way ahead of national interest. And if I had to give a real salute, I would give it to President Trump for waking us up. I mean, part of part of everything he started doing with China brought about or started a process of what is really going on here. And and now it's kind of like, okay, I think we're waking up and and what we need to do is to have the the men and women of commerce uh, continue to do their commerce but to be working closely with our national leaders to put that commerce behind national interest. And, and in terms of determining the national interest, we need some real good thinkers that help us figure out what that strategy is going to be.
1: We need a generation of Nixons, people who actually study grand strategy, who come up, who are tutored by Dwight Eisenhower, among other people, and who learn. Uh, and and then confront this challenge. Dwight, I think you're helping to do that with The President's Man. You've certainly impacted the history of Richard Nixon and the history of his presidency with The President's Man. Congratulations. It's going to be a bestseller. Great great hit on ABC this week yesterday. Continued success this week of your book launch, Dwight.
2: Thank you, Hugh. Uh, I hope people go out to uh, the bookstores and to Amazon and get The President's Man. Thank
1: you. Th- that's it. Seven times. The president's man, the president's man. Dwight Chapin, thank you. <laughs> that concludes today's episode of The Interview with Hugh Hewitt. Thank you for listening. Make sure you come back and check out all the other podcasts on the Salem Podcast Network. And remember to thank our sponsors, com. If you believe in long-form interviews like I do, then do your real estate transactions with Andrew Del Rey and Todd Avakian. I've known both men for a long time andrewandtodd.com. Go there, answer a couple of questions. They'll tell you what's best to do with your house or call them at 888-888-1172. You'll be glad you did and you'll be glad that you listened to the next episode of The Interview.